Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. So this morning, the newspaper, which I actually receive as an object, um, was folded with a mini newspaper on top of it, an insert, but for the exterior, um, with images of very profitable art from an auction house, blanketing the front pages, perhaps to mimic a pop-up window or a redux of being blended into the news. And I thought, what a perfect day to then come hear Jenna Osman read poetry. So we can always feel a little watched in how we look at things, as Jenna's great body of poem essays provide worthy stage directions. Jenna Osman is a great extractor. She takes what has sufficiently blended or buried itself into our visual textual fields and pulls it out like a gem, then smashes it again so it becomes even more blended and buried into a new text. There were the statues with the histories inside public figures with stone eyes looking at Philadelphia's city vistas, then became Jenna looking at the statues, looking, all with the hum of drone operators in the background, or her remixing of popular science's offerings on the practice of phrenology. Jenna Osmond's continual question, is poetry the news, which began as an essay on jacket from 2006, gains haunting reciprocity to poetry she writes and the poetry she writes about. It is a forever relevant question and one that reaches deep into her process of working with source material. Jenna has a remarkable way of digesting information. Amendments giving corporations personhood, for example, result in a book of poems, her recent corporate relations, where meditations on laws and court cases are lined with cryptic mediations of the body becoming more and more mechanical in more of a wooden arcade game way with ropes and pulleys moving short and long distances. These clunky cyborgs foreshadow our more flat screen contemporary selves with companies mixed into our social senses. To any legal name battle, I hear Jenna's line, the body is a cog interpreted out of existence. This might explain how she writes, the head has become a warm factory. Around the edge of context, Jenna's work fills in the blanks mitigating and offering crescendo to the harsh lighting around us. There is not an effort to smooth the cold facts, but a limitless source of references. So no autopilot retreats amidst its grinding metal parts. I'm advertising, who are you? Are you advertising too? Please welcome Jenna Osman. Thank you for that amazing introduction. And thank you all for coming. Okay, so I have had uh, apparently a long-standing obsession with the Supreme Court. And so I thought I would just kind of trace that obsession. And I, it all began thanks to Charles Reznikov and his transcriptions in his book, Testimony. Um, so in my kind of first full book, the character 
Uh, I have a piece called A Real Life Drama Found Poem. That's part of a longer poem called Authorities, and I'll just start by reading this. In a spirited argument, eight of nine justices fired questions, but the discussion ranged from goats and butterflies to koalas and even rare bugs splattered on car windshields. Scalia, couldn't we pick an uglier example than a koala bearer? Scalia, to say this is taking an animal seems to me just weird. Souter, it seems to me you're wrong when you say it's got to be purposeful. Justice Thomas was the only court member who refrained. <laughs> Stevens, would I be violating the law if I built a golf course without the intention of causing a bird to become extinct, but with the full knowledge that it would result in the birds becoming extinct? Souter, fairness cannot be stretched to the point of calling this a fair trial. Scalia, a blistering dissent. Stevens, the right to remain anonymous may be abused when it shields fraudulent conduct, but political speech, by its nature, will sometimes have unpalatable consequences. Stevens, anonymity is a shield from the tyranny of the majority. Scalia, it facilitates wrong by eliminating accountability, which is ordinarily the very purpose of anonymity. Renquist, this they cannot do without seriously undercutting the orderly process of law. A spirited argument. Stevens, the law was nothing more than an attempt to blindfold the public. Scalia, the doctrine is a structural safeguard establishing high walls and clear distinctions because low walls and vague distinctions will not be judicially defensible in the heat of interbranch conflict. Scalia, in dictatorships of the modern world, bills of rights are a dime a dozen. Imperial presidency, runaway Congress, unelected judiciary, Scalia this week borrowed from poet Robert Frost in offering one of his reasons why good fences make good neighbors. Strongly worded opinion. Stevens, to engage in such pure speculation while condemning the assertion of increased punishment as speculative seems to me not only unpersuasive, but actually perverse. Both lawyers were peppered with questions from eight justices. Only Justice Thomas did not ask one. Scalia, they weren't there to recreate, they were there to express something. O'Connor, if a circus holds a parade expressing no viewpoint except the circus is in town and everybody come, can an animal rights group demand the right to march in that parade to protest the use of circus animals? Stevens, how to distinguish between a sign for identification and a sign for advocacy. Kennedy, for a court to tell a private entity how to celebrate is antithetical to the First Amendment. O'Connor, your argument is so far-fetched, it's hard to bring this down to reality, down to the real world. Only Justice Thomas, who remained silent in most arguments, appeared troubled by the notion that the Klan's white cross is a religious symbol. Thomas, you say this is a religious symbol. 
What is the religion of the Klan? If someone said the Klan was carrying a cross down Pennsylvania Avenue, would the average person, a reasonable person, think that the Klan was engaging in the free exercise of religion or a political statement? Impassioned dissents. O'Connor, you come here arguing for this remarkable proposition to suppress speech in a discriminatory fashion. Thomas, what does a burning cross symbolize? Some might see fire in that cross. O'Connor, does a reasonable person know how to read? Justice Scalia was also scathing. Breyer, has the paper been piling up? Thomas, who came to the Supreme Court under a cloud and immediately withdrew into a shell of silence, peppered a lawyer with questions. So that was um, in the 90s, and the courts changed a little bit. Um, since then, there was an, did anyone see that um, article in the Sunday Times about how Sotomayor and Thomas and um, Alito all went to, their, to Yale to have a conversation? Um, apparently, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> A lot of joking. <laughs> so um, in my next attempt to kind of work through this obsession with um, Supreme Court transcripts, which I guess, you know, in my mind, I had always thought that these transcripts would be incredibly dry, but the arguments are filled with just so many strange analogies to try to get the point across that um, they really are kind of endlessly fascinating, and they're all online for us to read. So. Um, in this book, an essay in asterisks, I have a poem called The Astounding Complex, and I'll just read a couple of um, parts from it. It starts with some opening arguments. Irving Goffman describes the astounding complex as a mystery that we think we should be able to rationally solve but can't. I think of what might fall into this category. UFOs, fortune-telling, Coincidence, Bartleby, Adradek. We can't get to a place of solution. The astounding complex is the opposite of law. Meanwhile, as we move through the everyday, the law is not astounded by us. It reads us and comes to a final interpretation over and over again. The role of the court is to move the jury into a realm of reason that leads it beyond passion or pity. The intoxicant of empathy and emotion is abolished in the name of clear sight and interpretation. With a skilled application of distancing strategies, the facts, the objects of the case can be established with certainty, and sometimes that's a matter of grammar. So what happens next in the piece is I do a, a number of experiments where I try to kind of take this language of law and make it lawless. Um, and each of the experiments follow a, a procedure, and I have to be honest, I, I'm not exactly sure I know what the, remember what the procedures are, so I, I can guess, but... Um, I'll just read the results to you. So the first case that I deal with is United States versus Rodriguez Moreno, and it was argued in December 1998 and decided in March 1999. <clears throat> so this is the Supreme Court summary. 
a drug distributor hired respondent and others to find a New York drug dealer who stole cocaine from him during a Texas drug transaction and to hold captive the middleman in the transaction, Efrain Evendano, during the search. The group drove from Texas to New Jersey to New York to Maryland, taking Avendano with them. Respondent took possession of a revolver in Maryland and threatened to kill Avendano. Avendano eventually escaped and called police, who arrested Respondent and the others. Respondent was charged in a New Jersey district court with inter alia using and carrying a firearm in relation to Avendano's kidnapping in violation of 18 United Supreme Court section 924C1. He moved to dismiss that count, arguing that venue was proper only in Maryland, the only place where the government had proved he had actually used a gun. The court denied the motion, and respondent was convicted of the section 923C1 offense. The Third, Cir the Third Circuit reversed. After applying what it called the verb test, it determined that venue was proper only in the district where a defendant actually uses or carries a firearm. So I was very interested in this phrase, the verb test. I'm not exactly still, well, if you read the case, you can understand how they were using it. But I was trying to come up with my own verb test for the procedure that I did on this piece. And um, again, I'm not exactly sure what I did. I know, I see some kind of erasures. I see how United States becomes night states and how venue becomes Venn diagrams. Um, so there's a lot of just kind of disrupting um, the orderliness of the case language. So this is what happened after my verb test. Chatter the embers, you must cut off the arc. Oh wait, and so it was called night sates more Venn diagrams. Chatter the embers, you must cut off the arc. Your action, Efrain Evendano, is like a knockout from the inside of the arc. You fell down through the air of Texas, New Jersey, New York, Maryland, into a pond, a session held in the mind. Il Avendano, Avendano and the ally eluding memory, a call. New Jersey District Court whines, hums, and whistles a fire. You relocate, don't realize your hat is still on. The hat disintegrates morally. Government ads target and reckon use. You injure your own feelings, extinguish them, dent and declare guilty. Concealed circuits familiarize, then ravage the verb test, invalidate all use of spoken or written fires. To carry on, then roses whine, hum, and whistle, expressing ire. Ions are neglected. You curse, curt, and we reckon dense. Situated off, you are off. A hen throws dice and appears cured. The United States is tough. Your third circuit presents false information. You declare that verbs deter us from action. You are off. Your court as ever a verb, and so judges the illusion that men are required to injure themselves. Off, in spite of the big bed, you assume to exist during tins to din-ducked men, violently torn into pieces, whine, hum, and whistle. The ads are weeping, you're neglecting your kid. A rhyme rests with torso vertical, tin arts violently torn into pieces. Local Venn ropes encircle your car, now that's art, a target you neglected. The United States chatters, answer chatter, hat on, advance your pace. Here you mimic a coin with absurd results. 
than mimic unit rhyme. Hi, I do no mat hat into a pond. You employ Maryland and curse during and in relation to the kid's urgent pleas. Your kid, hi, he's off and suffers. As you walk back and forth, there's art to walking, then props, present false rhyme, an offense to adore. Um, so I can trace, I, again, you know, just looking at it retrospectively, it's pretty mysterious to me, um, but I do see like the word kidnapping in the case became, became your kid. And some different transformations like that happened in that piece. So that was um, kind of 90s, early 2000s stuff, and then I kind of let go this obsession only to return to it um, later when Citizens United was passed in the Supreme Court, and um, everyone was really upset by that ruling um, because it seemed to be indicating that corporations had all the, or had First Amendment constitutional rights just like people did, and um, so there was an uproar about it, and I wanted to know how this could have happened. Um, it seems like all of a sudden, but when I researched it, I learned that, in fact, corporations have been gaining constitutional rights since just after the Civil War. Um, they actually have First Amendment, Fifth Amendment, uh, First Amendment, Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, Seventh, and um, at, a, at a certain point, they had Fourteenth Amendment rights. Um, so I started to, again, kind of work with the transcripts of the cases, the kind of um, leading cases that gave them these rights. And um, so this book is formed, this book, Corporate Relations, uh, is works around an analogy, which is if corporations are people, then um, are people machines? Or are they objects? Or are they inhuman in some way? So. Um, I'll just read a couple parts of this. Um, this case is in the Fifth Amendment section, which Fifth Amendment rights give you the rights of due process, and they also give you the right not to experience double jeopardy. You can't be tried for the same crime more than once. Um, and so this case uh, is called Fung Fu versus United States. And the way that it's structured is literally all the words in the Supreme Court case sections are lifted from the transcripts um, in the order in which I read them. <clears throat> but again, a lot has been erased. We submit, sir, that the risk of error or impropriety must be borne. Fong Fu, who lost 15 pounds during the 13 days, the outburst of tears I miss the trail, excuse me, sir. One error is an attempt to psychoanalyze what the judge did. I was going to take legal license with Gertrude Stein and say, an acquittal is an acquittal is an acquittal, sir. Recommended that they now thrust a radio sound dropped from a plane by a parachute as it passes through the air returns to a receiver by Morse code. The temperature, the humidity, and the pressure of the air embodied the false testing. The judge's vigilance was particularly provoked. Description of a test operation as resulting in spurious marks on a piece of paper. 
Witness explained that spurious meant instantaneous on the spur of the moment. The judge cautioned the witness. And then the most important incident arose. 1962, Standard Coil Products Company with Bong Fu as a co-defendant was accused of defrauding the government in connection with a multi-million dollar contract to supply weather monitoring equipment to the Army Signal Supply Agency. After seven days of what promised to be a long trial, the judge abruptly dismissed the case because of doubts concerning the credibility of the government's witnesses. Later, the government attempted to retry the case, but attorneys for the corporation claimed that the Fifth Amendment statement, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, applied to the defendant. The court's decision affirmed that corporations were entitled to protection under the double jeopardy clause. The situation arose which triggered the directed verdict. Rigored on the eighth day after all this patience and indulgence, dropped from an airplane, a parachute then opens. There is a certain shock at that point. The parachute then allows the device to float to earth. The False Statements Act. It's difficult to describe those four or five days. They were, it was extremely long, extremely painful. The witnesses turned out to be rather inept. The witness must say that the signal would be deet deet dot da dot da deet deet. The judge objected to the word chamber. It might refer to a chamber pot. He objected to the use of the word gave. You must say he handed it handed to handed it to him. This use of the word superiors an extraordinarily an extraordinary malapropism. The witness had said he knew it must be virgin hair as one would speak of virgin timber or virgin wool. The judge, I think what he said need not be repeated. He was just a technically educated man, ignorant of the English language. It was an unfair slip of the tongue. I think this is the nub of it. Can is a big word. The judge, simply turned off his ear. His cerebration is very rapid. We submit that words aren't that controlling. Can this acquittal be tortured into a mistrial? And this section ends with a quote from Justice Clark in his dissent. The word acquittal in this context is no magic open sesame, freeing in this case two persons and absolving a corporation from serious grand jury charges of fraud upon the government. Okay. Um, and then I'll just read the poem that follows that, which is the other side of the equation, which is called Malaprops. A pun is a word that forgets itself and behaves doubly. It is the present and a man comes from the future. He has wires beneath his flesh. When he is shot, there are sparks and multicolored lights. Electrical or electoral? Derangement or arrangement? It is the present, and a man dies one day, but then is alive another day. Certain body parts that had been destroyed have been replaced by metals. 
spurious or superior, flamingo or flamenco. A man fights. At first he seems evil, but eventually he is proven good. He is a machine fighting other machines. Illiterate or obliterate, tantrum or tandem, unanimous or anonymous. A robot replaces a dead wife. She leads the workers to the machine halls to destroy the heart machine. Malevolent or benevolent, metal or mental. A metal endoskeleton takes a pipe bomb to the abdomen. A metallic torso drives it, drags itself from an explosion. A mechanical man listens to his heartbeat. Question, buried him? Buried him without knowing whether he was dead or not? Answer, oh no, not that, he was dead enough. The present, an enforcement droid escapes his monitors. He aims a neural spike at his residual humanity, his past organic form. This happens again and again. Um, so I'm gonna end with a poem that I wrote last night. Um, so I can't speak for its quality. Um, <laughs> it's my election day poem because election day is coming up on Tuesday. And I'll just say that each of the first, the first line of each section I've stolen from poems by Magid. <laughs> um, so when you hear the really good lines, they're his. Um, and we'll see how it goes. One, the architect constructs our shadows. We create a night without aesthetics. I was at a cocktail party and my friend said, let's go to the shadow party into the opaque. What is a party? We think of the parties as complex. We think of the parties as ecosystems, but shadow parties are stronger, nodes of influence, multiple points of entry, an avalanche of ads. Two, I see my shadow fades. Is it one more thing to sacrifice for meaning? I was at a surprise party and somebody said, there's lots of dark money at shadow parties, billions of dollars, let's go. The conductor signals, the journalist signals, an untraceable source. I'll admit, I was surprised. The flow of dark money through the pipes of the party sounded like shells in a jar, sounded like bees in a hive. Three. The choice of verb tense will control your shadows and the extent of what you can promise your family. I was at a dinner party. I am at a dinner party. A varied set of actors, or was it, is it just one? At previous parties, I was, I am aware of a varied set of actors making bad jokes. They made bad jokes, then compromises. But this time, the hydraulics were, they are, different. Four, people eventually stop sending you party reminders. Hoping for a costume party, but instead overshadowed, parties are not stable. Parties are shapeshifters, enchanted by the velvet rope, then rudely ejected, knees scraped on cobblestone. Wasn't I one of the party faithful? Didn't I know the score? Five, the information society crept up on us. 
Sources untraceable, large amounts of dark money flowing through the system, dark money in the system acting outside the structure, driving a truck of money through a loophole but hard to trace. Dark money is the problem that you know, but where does the money flow? Six, we asked the candidate, are you a team player? Does presence matter in a hydraulic system? The party faithful hived off, living in the hollow in between, swallowing endorsements, making phone calls, taking polls, a diagram of invisible connections, a rat's nest behind them. Seven, but the ones who stayed cashed in big. This poem was funded by an organization that does not disclose all of its donors. Um, and so that's it. I stole uh, a bunch of that language from some articles by this Yale law professor, Heather Gerken, um, who has come up with this proposal. Maybe um, I think she was speaking on that radio program on the media this weekend. And um, so her proposal was that, like, similar to ads, um, political ads where the politician gets up and says, I'm so-and-so and I endorse this message. You know, that's a rule where he has to show that he's kind of paying for this ad. Um, similarly, Gherkin proposes that ads funded by groups that don't want to reveal their donors have to include the phrase, this ad was paid for by X, which does not disclose the identity of its donors. Um, and she wrote in the Washington Post, Given how much of the campaign finance system the court has eviscerated in recent years, disclosures are becoming the only game in town. So see you at the polls. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I'm going to indulge in this list of Magad Zare's um, poetry titles, so this might seem like a bio, even though I don't usually read bios. Thank You for the Corner Office, Portrait of the Poet as Engineer, The Revolution Happened and You Didn't Call Me, If Reality Doesn't Work Out, and there's two chapbooks on the table that I was looking at and I failed to write down their titles, they are Sugar, Sugar, Break, thank you. Okay, I'm going to add that to the list. Um, so they seem like the titles in Magid's poems seem to me like solo poems that are punching the air, luckily not prone to evaporate, um, perhaps to make the conventions or routines around poetry more exciting or deceptively comforting. Magid writes, the poem has its own concerns which are different from mine as if the books are slogans ready to advertise themselves, but not in a sinister way. Only in the way a person might go to a Halloween party dressed as themselves and rely on the guests to name a costume. If death in all its permutations is such a constant preoccupation of the poet, will it morph into humorous obsolescence, meeting its opposite along the way? Magad's poems are like the people who stand with water alongside a marathon, then the cup gets thrown back in their faces as we watch the movement of the people running. If the death already happened, then I cannot fear it. This question is conditional, a plastic bag inside a plastic bag, or as Magad writes, death or death. 
It might not seem the most uplifting thing, might not seem like the small talk banter material for your mind's candy bowl. With staring the elephant in the room down though, Magen makes the impossibly dire a lot lighter to handle. Perhaps with a sheer abundance of longing, the heavy death prospect floats. Magen announces, language is the worst place to host desire, and yet he does just that. A lot spills over for him to collect. Alternatives to reality, for example, can be found in receipts. Or one could really be at a strip mall shopping for apocalypse. It's ridiculous, it's funny, it's everything and how the heart drops. One could be earnestly reading Marx or fixating on a disruptive person at Starbucks or finding a postmodern version of everything in his books. It is with equal observation to imagination that Zaire's poems keep eye contact all the time. The poet walks the streets in Cairo, sits down with metal detector ears at the cafe, and scripts panache that leads to despair. The military trucks are intriguing, he writes, in their daily search for intimacy. How light is his steady gaze, how erotic sadness can become if you let it normalize the beeping goodies of our message alerts. Please help me in welcoming Magid Zaire. I'm speechless. <laughs> I can't. Thank you. Thanks, Ariel, for having me here and for, for the lovely introduction. It's quite an honor to read with Jenna. And uh, I want to recognize my friend Dan. Uh, I, came to, I came to New York, and he surprised me with a chapbook that he sold. He, he worked it all by himself in Ugly Duckling. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. I'll read from three things. I'll read from uh, If Reality Doesn't Work Out, and then I read from a translation of some young Egyptian poets, and then I will read from Sugar Break. I will start with an uplifting poem. How about that? Let time destroy it all. Erotic love, buildings, URLs, etc. All that is solid is already air. Your friends, your family, your social network posts, your drinking and fuck buddies, and your MacBook Air. Even Kavavi's poems don't stand a chance in the middle of this exchange. Love triangles demand precision. Climbing small hills, or pouring wine on plants, or holding a cock without closing a single eye. Enjoy your musical range. Je suis malade. It's a background for the mopping. I wish you knew life is endangered. I kissed your slow movements. The superheroes in the background cursed back and begged to keep the status quo. A state of infinity or nothingness. You take the couch, I keep the bed. 
looking at curves and editing out the wine to begin from the socially constructed. It is impossible to spread virginity without software. Flying again from the speed bump into a shooting range, kissing the silverware of violence, while taking turns meowing into a half-empty reservoir. Then the curtain lands on a helicopter making love. The poor don't exist. They die, then reincarnate even poorer. <laughs> Trapping nightmares, an excuse for voiceover, and flying objects exporting intimacies. Try us again tomorrow. We would have marked the streets with over-the-counter banalities. Cultural adjustments starts with electricity. My first three purchases in Cairo were, one, a US to European outlet plug adapter, two, breakfast, three, a charger for my super retro Nokia cell phone. Asking about a charger, the clerk who was very helpful asked, do you want the original or the copy? He said the word copy in English. The Nokia phone is way out of style and fashion and history. This was inadvertently a Baudrillardian simulacra moment mixed with an authentic Egyptian absurd touch. I thought both the chargers he is offering me must be copies of an original one that in itself a copy of a platonic charger out there in the world of forms. I knew the word copy is a simple synonym for cheap. I ordered the copy and resolved my metaphysical issue for the day. True story. All I can afford is a small scale metaphysics. Enough to run a rented apartment with borrowed Wi-Fi. In order to watch a faraway war or book a maintenance appointment a small enough metaphysics to invite an angel or two over in and cook them hot water in exchange for divine secrets. A small epistemology to go with it so I can read cookbooks and cartoons about Spinoza or few haikus. This is from uh, a book that should come in a couple of months. It's a translation of uh, Egyptian poets who are, I think, age between 25 and 33. It's a book called The Tahrir of Poems. I'll read from three poets. This is from Ibrahim Sayed, called Seven Tips for Giving Up Smoking. Saturday, 
get rid of the old lighters that fill the drawers. Sunday, stop walking alone. Things will feel less burdensome when you are in the company of others, as you shall be pleased by the misfortunes piled behind each of them. Monday, connect with your shady friends to buy a gun and a silencer. The friends who you let down one night to build a bright future that no one needs. Tuesday, you need to kill someone is still living. Maybe it is better to start a novel. <laughs> Wednesday, give yourself, give yourself time to secretly practice cruelty. Thursday, one match is going to be sufficient to burn a corpse that you didn't recognize enough. Friday, at least smile to yourself while shining the front of your shoes. Second poem by Ibrahim is called 12 Noon. As usual, the prostitutes are asleep. The employees are getting ready for an early death. The trains are running late and the angels are writing down small secrets. The angels keep a secret and hate dogs. They flap their wings above my mother's head. Maybe her headache would mellow out. They know that when my lover fidgets, she is cursing the sun. 12 noon, we're not missing anything to become angels. Just two cardboard boxes, bodies lightened from desires, and glue. The next poet I'll read is Malaka Badr. Like one of the things I'm doing in this in, in this translation is I am giving a very small introduction and I'm not having neither my bio or the bios of the poets. I'm just letting the poems speak for themselves. But they kept pressuring me to say something about Malaka, so I like for another publication. So I said like she is a punk, blue color Sylvia Plath, if that make any sense. A slaughtered chicken a few minutes before death. I thought to stand up and organize the room and cut my nails or put on lipstick that no one will see. I wash the dishes or break them for a change. I pace around myself, do some crunches, or go out to the balcony cheapened by voyeurism. I smoke two cigarettes without feeling them, or flirt with a mouse on the opposing roof. I write and erase. My feet are swollen. My fingers are numb. I double check the acne on my face before I throw my sixth cigarette at the serpentine souls, the werewolves of the streets, and go inside and die a little. One is called going. One day, oh, that, that requires a small explanation. In Egypt, buses, you have, you have to cut, yeah, there is someone who gives you tickets in the bus and they are very small and very small paper, uh, paper uh, squares. Can, anyway, going. One day, I will run away aboard one of these infinitely small ships 
that I make out of bus tickets and squeeze them each time into the darkness of my bag once my shoes touch the asphalt. These ships that I dispense to my friends are my beloved secret way to live with them, part of myself that's more complete than me. The last part I read from this collection is Aya Nabi. So this is called Accordion. Why don't I become, on my day off at least, an accordion? To be pressed on by the hands of a player. It's okay even that he is a beginner. His hands will stretch me in a flow that renders my movement a necessity to keep the rhythm. Thus my day will start with rehearsals beginnings and end with concerts end. When one end of the accordion meets the other in synchronized steps to settle finally in a corner of the musical instrument room full of melody and completely healed. So I will finish by reading from the Sugar Break chapbook. See how much time. Maybe the world is incomplete without you. You are made of farmed salmon and traffic tickets. I am a ceramic pink elephant awaiting death. What is civilization without first wheels? We are not making enough noise. We are asleep on the job. We are upsetting God, complaining about adjectives. Here we are in a picture together. Happy birthday, everyone. Measuring history by come. It's queer not to be queer. We experience mismatched desires as distance. Yes, to the dust we will become. Transsexuals and streets. Yes, to the moments of comfort and to their associated guilt. The body tires and spirituality takes over our dirty work. We enter life ready for a secret. For example, God bullies us, or hope is possible, or our muscles will dictate our sexual pleasures, or we will never catch infinity in the act of being infinity. We will come close to love, and that's about it. We have skin-to-skin -skin contact to impose our existence, we also have words and thawed emails, leaving behind a trail of sexy messages and thoughts lost in dreams that we use to circle around the world, which circles around us. And we witness our bodies getting deformed, and we witness. Up with the birds, there's a problem with cuteness. All our detainees are raped. We, 
the breathing amateurs in a pharmacy line kneeling to remember the vertical lines of water. We are happy chewing mint gum or constructing sadness on the dangerous sidewalk of oceans. We will laugh permanently like stones, sleeping tangentially to some reunion party. This place in the psyche I don't touch isn't sexual. It's about fear of God, of his intense desires. It's about my inability to sustain one thought to its end in these poems. I'm afraid of telling my fears lest they happen. So instead, I am saying thank you for death, God. Thank you also for the few moments of hope and for sleep after okay orgasms. <laughs> I'm glad someone laughed at this one. Writing lost or silence or waiting on a bridge of misunderstanding and silence and missingness. So I'll finish with this one. Thank you guys so much for making it. It is raining, although by Seattle measure that's not rain, you know. Thanks again, Ariel. In the different bookstore corners, I wasn't really looking for books. I was searching for a gap in the world, mostly caused by humans. There were people with deformed bodies. There were people with deformed bodies from bad medications. I stayed outside in time for the weekly beating. Thank you, guys. Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.